Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, in the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may mutually encourage each other by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may have, that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to I'm, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Vodi Bakum once wrote, "The gospel is much more than how we get saved and go to heaven." The gospel is about the work of Christ saturating every aspect of our lives. So I want to welcome you back to our series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. And as I talked about two weeks ago, I'm very excited to preach through this letter um, of the Romans because this entire letter is about my favorite subject, which is the gospel. The central theme of this letter is the gospel. In fact, in the first 15 verses, I don't know if you realize, but Paul uses the word gospel three times, and he will do that many more times throughout the letter. And, and it makes it clear that, that he, can't, he can't wait to preach the gospel to the Romans in person. In fact, I, as I work through this letter, I can barely contain myself um, because there are so many verses that I want to get to. There's so many verses I want to just jump in and unpack for you. Like, for instance, you know, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Again, some of my favorites. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Or how about... Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Or how about uh, Romans 3, 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What a glorious set of verses. Or how about Romans 5.8? But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Perhaps one of my favorites is Romans 8.28. And we know for, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Or Romans 10.9. Everybody should remember this one, right? If, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And I can go on and on. There is just so much good stuff that I can hardly contain myself. Now, I could actually just simply preach a 10-part sermon series on Romans and basically just cover the top 10 verses that I love the most. But I would do so at great expense to all the riches that this book has to offer. The truth is Romans is Paul's theological masterpiece, and it's a brilliant exposition of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ from the very beginning to the very end. And every verse and every section is chocked full of theologically rich material about God and about what He's done for us through Jesus Christ. And, and we saw that right from the beginning, last, I mean, the last time we were together. Remember the last time we, we looked at the first seven verses of chapter 1, which is basically Paul's greeting and introduction to the, to the people in Rome. And what we discovered in this short section is that it's all about the gospel. Number one, the gospel is, is God's gospel, that it is of God. It is His good news for the world. And the gospel was promised in the Old Testament, right? That, that the gospel was not plan B, that somehow that God didn't have a plan A to save a group of people and they reject Him, and then suddenly He has plan B to include everyone else, that the gospel has always been God's plan. And then the fact that the gospel is centered on Christ. Christ is a central figure of the entire gospel. It is about Him. He is the one that reconciles us to God. Or the purpose of the gospel um, is for the glory of God. Or or the, the gospel is to be declared to the entire world. Or how about the fact that the gospel produces obedience of faith. And that the gospel saves those that God calls. And that the gospel brings unity to all all believers, to Jews and Gentiles alike, right? The gospel brings unity between males and females, between black and white, between rich and poor. In fact, unity is a theme that Paul uses over and over again throughout his letters. And we got all of this, all of this in the first seven verses of of chapter 1. And that's why we're going to go through this and take our time to go through this section by section, unpacking the rich truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last time we wrapped up what we saw in that was God's love for the Roman Christians. In fact, Paul reminded them at the very end of that section in verse 7, he says, to those those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes God's love for the Romans. Well, in this section today, we're going to see that not only are the Romans loved by God, but they are also loved by Paul, a man they have never even met before. In fact, turn with me to uh, verse 8, and we'll see that Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. What we're going to see over these next several verses is Paul's expressing his affection for the Roman Christians as he opens this letter up. And he he does this by telling them that he thanks God for them, he prays for them, and that he longs to see them, and he wishes to be mutually encouraged by them. This, by the way, is the focus of the text, Paul's genuine agape love for the people that he has never met. Paul's genuine love and affection for people he has never come in contact with. And and, and there is a lot for us to take away from this text and the way that we live our lives as Christians. But before we get into that, what we're going to see in this text is really Paul's underlying view of God and how that shapes his love that he has for these people. You see, the love that Paul has for the Romans has to come from somewhere. He doesn't know these people. You you understand that. He doesn't know them. But yet he loves them. That love must originate from somewhere. That must be rooted in something. And where it comes from, where that love comes from, really comes from Paul's view and understanding of who God is. And what, what we're going to see in this text is that Paul gives us a sneak peek of his theology about who God is and what he's done for him through Jesus Christ that inspires this love that he has for these people, a people that he's never come in contact with. I mean, let's just be honest with each other. How many, how, how much can you genuinely love someone you don't know? How is it possible to love a group of people you've never laid eyes on? I mean, we love each other, Because we know each other, we see each other, we get to hug each other, we get to shake each other's hands, we're a part of each other's lives. 
how is it possible to love someone else? How many of us actually right, can love like that? I mean, how many of us actually remember to pray for those people that we love? Much less the people that we don't know. How many of us truly have a heartfelt love that motivates us to pray regularly for the people we know, much less the strangers that we don't know? Because that is what we're going to see here in the text. Paul continually, regularly praying to God for his brothers and sisters that are still strangers to him. And the foundation of that love is who God is himself. And the first thing that Paul reveals about God is that God is a personal God. God is a personal God. Notice he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I thank my God. Now, it's really easy to read that and just kind of read past what he's saying here, as if Paul's just making a statement, you know, that he's just referring to God generically, right? But Paul identifies God as a personal God, a God with personality, a God that he can have a relationship with. You see, God is not some unapproachable deity. He's not some impersonal cosmic force, as some people suppose. God is, is certainly the unfathomable creator of all things that, that we can't really fully wrap our heads around, but he is still very personal. He is a personal God who, who has intellect and who is creative and who, who is responsive and loving. And he created mankind not to be a trinket for him to have collected, but to have a relationship with him. Hence the reason why mankind was made in his image. Mankind was made to be in a relationship with this personal God. And so, and so God is not just a God who is just out there somewhere. He is a personal God, right, that, that he knows. A personal God that, that he says is my God. Paul is expressing the truth that he has a relationship, a personal relationship with the creator of all things, and he uses that relationship to express gratitude for the Romans. A group of people, again, he's never met. But notice the foundation of this relationship. Again, it's easy to overlook when we read this text. But Paul was a man, right? Think about this. He was a man born into sin, like all the rest of us a man who calls himself the chief of sinners, a man who says, I can't even do the things I'm supposed to do, and the things I'm not supposed to do, I do. A man who persecuted and killed members of the body of Christ. That man has an up-close personal relationship with God himself. How is that possible? I think when we read sometimes through the text, we, we miss the obvious. How is it possible for a sinful man to approach God in a relationship, much less come to him asking anything of him? This right here is something that we as Christians, I think, all too often take for granted. How can sinful man come into the presence of God and make his thanksgiving and petitions to him? Well, notice Paul says, I thank my God through... Jesus Christ. There is the answer. And again, this, this is really easy for us to overlook. But Paul, by saying this, is expressing a monumental theological truth here. The fact that Jesus Christ is the way in which Paul comes to the Father. Paul comes to God through Christ and prays through Christ and gives thanks through Christ because Christ is the mediator between God and man. This is an overwhelming truth that we just lose sight of, I think, at times. Or we just feel like, like God owes us that, but, we, but He doesn't. We talked about this this morning, in fact, in our catechism about the mediator Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter um, 2, verse 5, for there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, Paul has a relationship with God and is able to come before him on behalf of other people, not on his own accord, but through Jesus Christ, through Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the only mediator between God 
in men. You see, Paul doesn't say that he, he prays through Jesus simply as an, a religious expression to sound spiritual, right? He says this because he's expressing a rich theological truth. It's the foundation of the gospel. He gives thanks through Jesus Christ. He prays through Jesus Christ because, because that's the only way he can come to God. That's how he can have a relationship with God. But now you say, duh. But how often do we forget this? Jesus is the mediator between God and men. That is why he is the Christ. That is why he is the Messiah. That's why he is the one who came into the world to do for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. He is God who became flesh and as such spans the gulf, the vast gulf between us and God. Jesus fully, eternally God entered into the world and took upon himself a human nature, as our catechism talks about, through the Virgin Mary and in his humanity. In his human life, he lived the perfect life, which is required by anyone who wants to have a relationship with God. And then he died in our place to make atonement for our sin that separates us from God. And then by our faith in him, our sins are then forgiven and we are washed completely clean. And his righteous standing with God is granted to us as a gift, as if it's our own. That's how we enter before a holy and just God. Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, in effect, reconciles us back to the Father. And not just partially, but completely. We are reconciled to God as part of his family. And because of that, we can come to him anytime we want to through Christ. And all we have in a relationship with God is through Christ alone, right? And not, and I say that because Jesus himself makes very clear emphatically that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him because there is no other mediator. But do we fully understand that? Do we fully hold on to that? You cannot come to God without Christ. No one, no one in history, no one in the world will come to God without Christ. All roads do not lead to God. Every person must come to Christ. In fact, you can't even pray to God without Christ. Your prayers without Christ are ineffectual. Christ is the entire basis of your relationship with God. He is the way into the kingdom. He is the way into the throne room of grace. By the way, this is why, I don't know if you realize, why we pray in the name of Christ. We don't pray in our own name. We pray through Christ in the name of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, we pray, the way we pray is to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Prayer like salvation is a triune activity. I don't know if you realize that. We make our petitions to God through the mediator of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as Christians. This, by the way, is why I think all of us need to have a higher view of prayer. All of us could stand to grow in our, our theology of prayer. In fact, I would say that if all of us had a higher view of prayer, we would all be people who would pray a lot more. And by the way, we would see the hand of God move a lot more. Because look what it takes. Look what it takes to have the privilege of coming before the throne of grace. It takes the power of the triune God himself to allow us to come before him to pray. 
Sinful man cannot simply come into the presence of God and have an audience with the sovereign of the universe. Do you realize that? None of us have the right to just walk into the presence of God and start making our petitions to Him. A mediator is required, and and Christ is the mediator, and the Holy Spirit is a power by which we pray. In fact, later on, Paul is going to tell the Romans in chapter 8 that the Spirit empowers us to pray even when we don't even know what to pray. He says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is saying that the Spirit empowers us to pray even when we can't pray. And on that basis... He then, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and those who are called according to His purpose. What a miraculous gift prayer is. What a miraculous gift for a sinful person to be granted an audience with the sovereign of the universe to be able to boldly come to the throne of grace. And it takes nothing short of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish. What a miracle prayer is. What a wonderful gift for God to bestow upon us. The privilege to be able to to pray through Jesus Christ. And what a wonderful gift to bestow on other people. I really get frustrated when, when when you tell other people, I'm praying for you, don't pray for me. You know what I mean? Don't, don't pray for... What, what good is thoughts and prayers? I'm going to tell you it's the most loving thing a person can do. That you would take the time to enter the throne room of grace and come before the sovereign king of the universe through the power and the sacrifice of Christ that makes it possible in order to utter their name before God? Are you kidding me? In order to express thanks for them, in order to lift them up, in order to pray for their needs... There's not much more you can do that's more loving than that. What a precious gift that is. We would do well to have a higher understanding of the value of prayer. That we would see it for what it is. The divine miracle made possible by the grace of God. Paul is opening in this opening phrase betrays a high Christology and a personally high view of, of prayer. And understand, and understanding this will help us to see the value of what Paul is going to say next and the real love and affection that Paul has for these strangers that are his brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul continues his greeting and introduction and expresses to them, right, this famous evangelist that they've more than likely have heard of comes before God to give thanks for them. I don't know about you, but anytime anybody says that they pray for me, I go, thank you. I praise the Lord for that. Right? But Paul is telling them that he's praying for them. And he's that he's grateful to God for them. Paul is grateful to God for them. Now, what's he grateful for? He's grateful for their faith, he says, and for the outworking of their faith. Because notice he says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. You see, not only do they have faith in Christ, but that faith is evident in the world around them. It can be seen. It has borne enough fruit in their lives that the people have been able to see it, and the result of that is people are talking about it all over the Roman Empire. They're saying that there's this group of true believers in Rome who follow Christ and are living it out. The gospel has taken root in Rome, and it's bearing fruit in the lives of those who follow Christ there. Paul says, I thank God that not only are you believers, but you are shining, you're shining the light of Christ in the world around you that people, to the point that people are talking about it. And then he says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 
Paul not only thanks God for the Roman believers, but he regularly and consistently mentions them in his prayers before God. And I want you to understand what he says is, this is not hyperbole. Paul literally means what he says here, that he he saying that I always pray for you. And when he points to God, he points to God himself as, as a witness for the fact that he always prays for them. Now, there are a lot of people that we probably know that would evoke the name of God, you know, without really much of a conscience to secure a promise. You hear people say all the time, right, without any thought, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God. We've heard it, I've heard it all my life, right? Or people say this, God is my witness, God is my witness. People will say that even almost as much out of habit. For many people to say such things is meaningless. But I'm going to tell you, Paul is not one who would have been so cavalier to say that. Paul has a super high view of God, and he personally experienced firsthand his sovereign power, not to mention he says that he serves God with his spirit. You see, Paul's not just some minister. He is sold out for the service of of Christ. In fact, remember, he said that he's a slave of Christ. So Paul, by appealing to, to God as his witness, is not appealing to hyperbole. He is saying truthfully, right, that he legitimately, continually prays for the Roman Christians and thanks God for them. Well, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why, do you, why are you emphasizing that? The big deal is this. This is an ex- expression of genuine love and affection for these people right? That he's never met. Because think about this. Paul is telling the Roman Christians who he's never met, right? But only heard of. He's telling them that he is t- he's taking time out of his day, out of his life to come before God and express gratitude for, for their faith and then lift him up in prayer. Of all of the hundreds of things that, pe- that Paul needed to pray for, of all the ministries and the people that Paul lifted up before God regularly, I, I can imagine that guy was praying all the time. Right? But Paul remembers to pray for these strangers. I mean, it's one thing to say that you're going to pray for someone. I mean, I think we say it all the time, right? It's one thing to say, I'll pray for you. It's a whole other thing to remember to do so. Right? You ever, there it happened to you? You're like, I'll pray for you. And you go, oh, who did I tell I was going to pray for? I forgot. It's one thing to say you pray for someone. It's a whole other thing to do so. Right? And who do we really pray for anyway? Who do we remember to pray for? Those people that we really love. And Paul is saying, I'm always praying for you. Paul's expressing his deep, heartfelt love for these Christians in Rome that he's never had a meal with, that he's never shook hands with, he's never preached to, and never met. He tells them, I'm grateful to God for you, and I pray for you all the time as an expression of genuine love and affection. When we look at this, I think it forces us to look in the mirror and ask the question, do we we love like this? Do we love other Christians like this? Again, we tell people all the time that we'll pray for them, but do we? Do we even regularly pray for the Christians that we know? Do we take the time to come before the throne of grace and thank God for our brothers and sisters that we're familiar with? Do we love each other enough to continually pray for each other, much less the people that we haven't even met? And notice, not only does Paul pray for them, but he says he's asking that somehow by God's will, he may now at last come to them. Paul not only has heard about them, he not only cares for them and prays for them, but he also is desperately wanting to meet these Roman Christians. And it's apparent he wants to do so or has wanted to do so for quite some time. In fact, he reveals, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Paul wants to meet them face to face, and he's wanted to for quite some time. Now, don't let this slip by you because because understand, there, there was no internet, right? Like, we have to remember that they didn't, he didn't have an ability to even see them. 
There were no photographs. There was no instant messenger. I mean, when I, you know, we have a connection with churches around the world, but we're able to see them, right? Paul didn't have photos. He didn't have videos like we do. All Paul had to go off of, think about this, is secondhand accounts. Secondhand stories about a group of people who live in a city of Rome who supposedly follow Christ. And he makes clear that he has heard about them from several different people. But why is he moved to such great love and affection for these complete strangers? We live in a world where if we don't see it, it doesn't exist. That's why we're so easily manipulated by the media, by the way. Why does he go regularly before God and pray for these people he's never met? and ask God would give him an opportunity to finally visit them. Why does he love these people so much? Well, the answer is actually very simple. It is because they are his family. They are his family. Paul's love for the Romans is rooted in the fact they are his family. And not only right, had Paul, has Paul been reconciled to God... Through Jesus Christ, he has been reconciled to these people as family. One of the most overlooked doctrines in the Christian faith is the doctrine of adoption. The moment that you come to faith in Christ, you become a member of God's family. As John says in his gospel, but all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Once a person is in Christ, they are made a child of God. And by implication, they are made family members of all those who are in Christ Jesus. Of all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is, has a genuine love for these Christians because he has a genuine relationship with them. They, even though he hasn't met them, are his family. This is a truth that we as Christians don't think enough about. We are not symbolically united to others in some religious way. We are united in a very real way in Christ. We are family members in the household of God. And even more intimately, we are fellow members of the body of Christ, which means we are all a part of one another. Do you, have you thought about that? We are a part of one another. You're a part of me, I'm a part of you. This is why Paul comes back to the issue of the unity of the faith over and over again. The relationship we have together is every bit as real or more so than the relationship you have with your biological family. And what is more, the relationship extends to every person in the world who is in Christ. Every other true Christian in the world who believes the gospel and is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, they are your family members, not just in name or concept, but in reality. You are, they are universally a part of the same body as you. You are united in Christ with them. But here's the thing. We don't think about this. Do you know why I know we don't think about this? Because we don't wake up every morning excited to go to town in hopes of meeting a new family member. Right? When's the last time you thought, you know what? I have an opportunity today to go meet a new family member that I've never met before, who's actually my family member. You don't go walking around Walmart, Walmart thinking, is that my brother? Is that my sister? In fact, you've probably given some dirty looks to fellow members of Christ, not realizing it. In fact, some of you might have even given the one-finger salute to one or two brothers in Christ who might have drive differently than, than you do. Right? And when you do meet somebody who's a Christian, you find out, you know, how does that exchange usually go, right? Oh, you're a Christian? Great. Nice to meet you. I'll pray for you if you remember to do so. This is why we don't stop. And and take the time to get to know them and get to know their life and find out about their ministry and what's going on in their church. This is why we don't build relationships to remember each other by. 
We don't get excited to meet another child of God. Now, I promise you, it's not like that in other countries. It's not like that in Pakistan. When they greet each other and find out in Pakistan that they're Christians, they, they, they genuinely take the time to spend and love on each other. We have family members all over the world that God has by His grace sovereignly redeemed. Family members who, who that, that we are called to love and pray for and to encourage. And also, they can do the same for us. Which, by the way, is the point. Notice that Paul says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, let's just get something out of the way. When Paul's talking about the spiritual gift, he's not talking about some supernatural sign gift when he says that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. The reason why I say that is because, first of all, the only one who can give those kinds of supernatural sign gifts is God, not some human being. Right? Paul would never presuppose to take credit for handing out those kinds of spiritual gifts. And with that, the spiritual gift that he's talking about is the gift that comes from true Christian fellowship. True Christian fellowship, the gift of encouragement. That's the gift he's talking about. Now, some would say, well, encouragement, that's not much of a spiritual gift. And my reply would be, then you really don't understand the value of true Christian fellowship then. If you don't think that encouragement is important, then you really don't understand what it really means to be a Christian. Encouragement is, is, is everything to us. The Christian life is not a life that we are, that's meant to be lived alone. We were put here to be together by God in community for a reason. For those who are in Christ, we share a special bond with our brothers and sisters that's more real than blood and biology. And it's because of that we are called to live together and to do life with one another and to be there for one another. In fact, one of the stunning features of the New Testament that we find is the expression each other or one another occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. Do you know that? Over and over you, you see the expression one another, each other, one another. The Bible clearly communicates that we are to be together for each other's mutual benefit. Jesus says in John 13, 34, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In Romans, Paul will say, honor one another above yourselves. The New Testament will say things like, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, greet one another, serve one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, spur one another on to love and good works. You see, mutually encouraging each other in our common faith is a wonderful spiritual gift. In fact, it's one of the greatest gifts available. But it's also a gift that has its own purpose. You see, Paul doesn't simply want to encourage the Romans so they feel better about themselves as Christians. He's not coming to encourage them to live their best life now, right? He's coming to encourage them to seek to, he's not coming to, to encourage them to seek a life of comfort. He wants to encourage them and strengthen them for a greater purpose. And that is to live boldly on mission for Christ. Notice what he says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You see, Paul is saying, as I want to come to you in Rome to visit you, right? And I want to do so to proclaim the gospel in your city, that I might reap some harvest among you in your city. Now, what kind of harvest is he talking about? He's talking about new believers. He's talking about a harvest of new converts. You see, Paul doesn't just want to go to Rome in order to visit the Roman Christians and just sit around talking all the time. He doesn't, doesn't just, he's not coming there simply to have theological lectures every night of the week while he's there. He wants to visit Rome in order to partner with the Roman Christians so they can proclaim the gospel, so they can bring more people to faith. 
This is why he wants to encourage them. And this is why he wants to be encouraged by them. He wants to spread the gospel. He wants to evangelize the lost in the city of Rome. In fact, it's the driving force behind everything he does. Notice he says in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greek and barbarian, both to wise and to the foolish. Paul sees his mission to evangelize the lost is an obligation or a debt that he owes to all other people. When's the last time you felt that way? That you owe a debt as a slave of God? That you owe a debt to share the hope of Christ with all other people? No matter who they are. Paul says, whether they're civilized Greeks or uncultured barbarians, he says, I am bound to every kind of person to go share the hope of Christ with them. This obligation that he feels is the catalyst for his desire to come to Rome because he wants to evangelize the lost and he wants to share the hope of Christ. And in light of that, he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul cannot wait to publicly and personally proclaim the gospel to the Roman Christians. Now, some people might wonder, well, why is he excited to proclaim the gospel to them? I mean, aren't they already Christians? Aren't they part of God's family? I mean, Paul, you know, Paul goes through this, you know, that that he's praying for them and that he thanks God for them and he wants to see them and he loves them. Why? Right? Does he need to preach the gospel? I mean, why is that the high point of this entire section? Well, the reason why it's the high point of this entire section is because the gospel is at the center of our unity in Christ. The gospel is the central method message of our faith. It's as if in America sometimes we believe that the gospel is like the beginning message you hear one time, you make a profession of faith, and then you move on to Christianity 2.0. No. Our relationship with God and our relationship with each other is rooted in the message of the gospel. The truth about God and who He is. The truth about who we are in light of who He is. And the truth about what God has done for us in spite of who we are is the message that holds us all together. This is why we continually talk about the gospel. This is why we proclaim the gospel when we're together. It's the central message of our lives. And we proclaim it to each other over and over again for several reasons. Number one, we ought to proclaim the gospel to remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ. Because I'm going to tell you it's easy. It is easy to lose sight of this truth amidst the challenges and the distractions of this life. It is easy to get discouraged, am I right? It is easy for things to pile up on you, for you to lose sight of this truth. It is easy to fall prey to thinking that we need to be doing more and living better for God in order for Him to accept us. Especially when you go through a season where you're just falling down. We need to continue to remind each other that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is it. And that's all it will ever be. We also need to proclaim the gospel to remind each other of how we need to treat each other. Because I'm going to tell you, when you have the gospel fresh in your mind and you understand what the score is, suddenly you're not quite so full of yourself. God has forgiven us an incalculable debt. And in light of that, we have no business withholding grace from anyone. And I'm going to tell you, that's one of those ones that I need to be reminded of over and over again. But God, don't you know how they hurt me? The debt that I owe God is more than I can possibly imagine. How can I possibly... Just, you know, remember that parable of the... the the wicked servant, how the king forgives this monumental debt, but the servant can't forgive a debt of 10 bucks. I think about that one often. The gospel ought to make us, make us much more gracious to each other. And it, the gospel also ought to make us the most loving people in the world because we understand that all that we have is by grace. 
None of it is what we earned. None of it is by our own hand. It's by the grace of God. The gospel also reminds us that a relationship with God, that our relationship with God is completely from Him. And then third, we also proclaim the gospel because we never really know when a person has finally heard the words of the gospel and repented and believed. We do not have the ability to read other people's hearts. We take each other at our professions of faith, but I don't have the ability to discern whether or not where your heart really is. And this is important because when I was younger, I believed that I was a Christian. I was told that I was a Christian. I grew up believing that I was a Christian. I knew the name of Jesus. I, I had had a Bible. I've been to church many times. By all accounts, even the people today would think that I was a Christian at the time, but I was not a believer. I was not. I was hell-bound. It was not until much later that I became a believer. Now, I'd heard the gospel many times in my life, right? but I wasn't a Christian. It wasn't until finally God had sovereignly arranged the things in my life to get my attention that He changed my heart, that I finally at last heard the gospel message. And for the first time, it shone a light into my heart that had never shone before. Then I truly repented and believed and came to genuine faith and repentance. We as human beings cannot see another person's heart, and so we must be like Paul and continually proclaim the gospel, even to those people who are believers. Because we never know when someone's truly grasped the gospel. In fact, being a pastor, now officially nine years, um, the seventh of this month, October, was my ninth year here as, as the pastor of the church. But I've ministered to a number of people in this church family have since gone on to be with the Lord. One even very recently. And every time I lose a member of my church family to death, I ask myself the same question. Did I do everything in my power to make sure they understood and believed the gospel? That I do everything within my power to prepare them to meet Christ? Yes, Yes, did I love them? Great. Yes. Did I make them feel special and welcome? I, I hope that, right? But that is not high on my priority list. What's high on my priority list is, did I help them be prepared to meet Christ? And this is why we are to continually preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. In fact, it's the most loving thing that we can do is to proclaim the gospel. And so before we wrap up, let me share with you the gospel again. The gospel always begins with God because it's His gospel. The gospel starts with the fact that God is the sovereign, just, loving creator of all things. He created everything that's not Him. The entire cosmos was created by Him, by His hand, and it was good. And He created us as the crowning achievement of that creation. And He created us special to have a relationship with Him. We were created to innately be connected to Him. But that connection has been severed by sin. Our first father, Adam, fell into sin, and then the rest of humanity fell with it. And sin and death entered into the cosmos. And we are not sinners simply by birth, but sinners by choice. We, by our own desires, sin and have been in rebellion against God. Which means then we stand at odds with the creator of the universe. The God who created us now stands in condemnation and judgment over us and His wrath abides upon us. And what's worse is once you figure that out, there's not anything that you can do on your own to fix it. You can't do enough to make God 
change his mind about you. You can't make him love you. You can't erase the stain of your sin by your own efforts. In fact, the Bible makes it really clear, our best efforts are but filthy rags before God, which means, and finally, we can now see what the real problem is. The real problem is, is we are helpless, hopeless creatures under the wrath of God who will one day stand and face his judgment and be cast into hell for eternity unless God himself does something for us. That's the good news is that what God did is that God himself entered into time and space through God the Son, became fully God and man, lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, died upon the cross to make payment for the sins that you couldn't pay for, died and then rose again proving that that the plan of salvation is real and you can trust him. And we, simply by putting our faith in Christ, avail ourselves of all that God has to offer through Christ. Forgiveness of our sins, righteousness of Christ, so we can have a relationship with God and come to Him in prayer anytime we want to, and eternal life with Him, and the assurance to know that no matter what happens in this life, nothing will separate us from the love of God. That is the gospel. And all who repent and believe the gospel, the Word tells us we'll be saved and have assurance of that salvation. And it is my hope continually that you abide in that assurance, knowing full well who it is that you serve. And my encouragement is now that we know this, let our lives be shaped by this. Let us become the most loving, gracious people known to man. Because you have nothing to hold over the head of anyone else. You have been forgiven a mountainous debt that you could not possibly repay. Right? You, like Paul, owe a debt to God that you have to make payment to your fellow man. And we do that through love and grace and prayer and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.